Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty has raised concerns about a future arms race. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said today not to worry about a new Cold War, but he did express concerns that a new era had begun, an era when the United States decides to move towards destroying the entire arms control system, which is regrettable, and he went on to express concerns about the new START treaty that expires in 2021. In today's Washington Post, Joe Cirincione, the president of the Plowshares Fund, identifies a member of the Trump administration that's made a career of targeting arms control agreements. Joe joins me now to talk about John Bolton and the future of arms control policy in the U.S. Nice to talk with you again, Joe. Well, thank you for having me back on. Uh, tell you know, why is the INF so important to the arms control regime? Why Why do people look at it as a building block thing? It seems to be something that applies mainly to Europe. Um, mm. what, what, what's the big deal about it? Well, this was a historic treaty. When Ronald Reagan negotiated it, uh, we were in the midst of a arms race that had resulted in some of the largest demonstrations in European history. Millions of people protested the deployment by the Soviet Union and the United States of these medium and intermediate range nuclear missiles. It was the first treaty that actually reduced weapons rather than just limiting them. It resulted in the destruction of about uh, 2,700 perfectly good nuclear weapons that the United States and Russia had spent years and billions of dollars building. And it began the process of arms reduction that continued uh, up until the present day when it's when it stopped. Reagan went on and negotiated the Star Treaty that then reduced the long-range ballistic missiles of both sides. And it led to a, about an 80% reduction in the global supply of nuclear weapons. And it still works. I mean, it's still relevant. It's not an old, obsolete treaty. It still limits the kinds of, of weapons that Russia and the United States can deploy. And these are these ground-based uh, ballistic and cruise missiles are particularly destabilizing because they can reach their target so quickly. The first notice you might have that an enemy was attacking you would be when mushroom clouds appear over your cities. That's why people are so concerned that the administration is so cavalierly discarding this nuclear restraint treaty. But if the Russians are cheating on it, uh, it is, is it true that the only people who are being restricted are, is, is the U.S.? We're only restricting the U.S.? Well, think of it like a speed limit. If the speed limit is 65, the Russians are doing 75. They, are, they have deployed a, a handful, maybe several dozen uh, cruise missiles that can exceed the ranges permitted by the treaty. But the answer isn't to then repeal the speed limit, and and that would allow the Russians to go 100, 120. In, in effect, th this makes the problem worse, not better. What you should do is use some of the established mechanisms to bring the Russians back into compliance. That's what Ronald Reagan did. At the very time that he was negotiating this 
treaty with the, Mikhail Gorbachev, the Russians were in violation of another treaty, the anti-ballistic missile treaty. They were building a radar that wasn't allowed by their treaty. But Reagan didn't tear up the treaty. He worked with the Russians to bring them back into compliance. And in fact, right after they signed the INF treaty in 1987, Gorbachev admitted that their radar was a violation and he tore it down. That's the way you deal with violations like this. You press your adversary. You don't give them a gift. This withdrawal is actually a gift to Russia, not standing up to Russia. It doesn't punish Russia. This is something Putin has wanted to do anyway. He doesn't like this treaty. He wanted to get out of the treaty. And now Donald Trump has given him this gift. He, the, the restraints will be off Putin. He can deploy as many missiles as he wants. And the U.S. takes the hit. Uh, it, Russia makes the argument that they have other security concerns outside of Europe around their borders and they need intermediate yeah. range missiles. Is that a legitimate argument? It's a legitimate argument. They're looking at China. China has missiles that are in this range because most of their targets are in this range. They don't need as many missiles that span the oceans. They don't need those to target Russia and India, Japan. That's what they use their force for. And Putin is saying, well, we have to deploy more missiles to go counter the Chinese missiles. That is a point of view. That is an arms race point of view. That is, we have to build up because the enemy is, is building up. The answer, of course, is to negotiate with China and get them to reduce their missiles um, rather than engage them in the kind of arms race. This is actually the, the real issue behind the U.S. withdrawal. It's really not about the Russian violation. It's about the desire uh, of some in the administration to deploy a new type of missile that is in this range primarily against China. There are some in the Pacific Command, for example, that want to deploy new ground-based nuclear and conventional cruise and ballistic missiles that could counter the Chinese. The fact, this problem with that, however, is that if we built those weapons, we have no place to base them. Japan's not going to take them. South Korea's not going to take them. You're stuck with the little island of Guam, which would then, of course, become a, 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 a target for the Chinese or the Russians or anyone opposed. There's no, same with Europe. If we build these new weapons, which John Bolton, the national security advisor wants to do, no country in Europe is going to accept them. So you realize what a, what a mess you've made here. You haven't fixed the problem. You've made it worse. You've cleared the path for the US to build new weapons that we don't frankly need and that nobody wants to deploy. I'm talking with Joe Cerincioni, the president of the Plowshares Fund, and we're discussing the U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Agreement. And we will stick with arms control. And coming up after the break, we are going to have a segment where the BBC goes back into their archives and talks with one of the Soviet diplomats who actually helped draft the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So <clears throat> stay tuned for that. And I wanted to ask a bit about... Um, John Bolton here and his mm -hmm. strategy. You're writing about this today in the Washington yeah. Post, and uh, he's always been against arms control treaties. He wants the U.S. to move unrestricted around the globe. Um, this dovetails nicely with mm -hmm. uh, Ronald or with uh, Donald Trump's America First policy. Uh, what what do you what what do you see coming down here? I mean, uh, Lavrov talked yeah. about the New Start Treaty next, and then uh, there's a there's a series of things that could happen. 
Yeah. Well, this this is about much more than a Russian violation. Uh, this is a clash of national security strategies. And John Bolton represents this this group of people that now dominate the Trump administration that have always been more unilateralist, that have always um, seen agreements like this as part of the efforts of the global Lilliputians to tie down the American gul Gulliver. In his mind, we should have maximum flexibility and multiple military options to preserve our security and interests in the world. So we, we protect our nation with military might, not pieces of paper. So John Bolton's career has been a, has been a, a serial killing spree of arms control agreements. He, he had his hands in killing uh, the the anti-ballistic missile treaty with George W. Bush. He killed the agreed framework that, that Bill Clinton had negotiated with North Korea that restrained that country's nuclear program. He killed he, the uh, Iran anti-nuclear deal that Barack Obama had negotiated, and now he's killing this. And he's not over yet. His killing spree will continue, many fear, with the last remaining nuclear restraint treaty, the New START treaty. That limits U.S. and Russian long-range ballistic missiles and, and nuclear weapons. That's due to expire in 2021, and John Bolton wants to make sure it does. If that happens, then for the first time since 1972, there will be no restraints whatsoever on uh, Russian or American forces. So if, if you missed the arms race of the 70s and 80s, this is what it looked like. And John Bolton is determined to bring us into a, a brand new arms race that he believes we will win because we will outgun the other side. That is an extremely dangerous and destabilizing philosophy, but it's the one that now governs the executive branch of the uh, American government. Why aren't more Europeans upset about the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty getting uh, withdrawn from? I was the, the NATO allies put out a statement. They're fully in support of the United States. They are upset, and this is going to fee feed into the pattern that they see. They've seen the administration now withdraw from the Paris Climate Change Accord, from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, from the Iran anti-nuclear deal, and now this. And you've heard Russia, uh, European leaders talk about the need to start looking to themselves uh, to provide security, to start developing European solutions because they no longer trust uh, the Americans. They no longer believe that we have their security interest at heart. What the NATO statement does, you got to look a little below that, they express their support for the Trump administration. They are hoping that in the six months that it takes to withdraw, so you, the mechanism is you make an announcement, you declare your intention to withdraw, and then in six months it becomes effective. They're hoping that they can convince the United States to back down. They want to maintain their, the, the unity with America. They still want America involved, but they're hoping they can change the Trump administration's position. Federica uh, Mogherini, the European Union foreign policy chief, was a little more direct in her statement. She said, what we definitely don't want to see is our continent going back to being a battlefield where other superpowers confront themselves. That belongs to a faraway history, she said. Well, it's not history anymore. It looks a lot like the near future. Do you think that this issue has the ability to mobilize people like it used to? You cited yeah. the millions of people who came out. And I, I imagine if 
people in Europe should or might be concerned about this, but um, Russia has some allies in Europe, and uh, I don't know. Do, do people really want to <clears throat> build some kind of action against this? You, I, you, I don't think you're going to see the massive nuclear anti-nuclear demonstrations that you saw in the 80s um, because the, the, the threat isn't that immediate. Remember, Russia has just deployed uh, 60 or so of these weapons in the western part of, of, of Russia. They're not directly uh, you know, going into, as they did then, into the Warsaw Pact nations that the Soviet Union had. And the U.S. hasn't been deploying any weapons yet. And that's what really got the European attention, was when these missiles started going into the U.K., into Germany, into Belgium, etc. But what you are seeing is um, to, the U.S. Congress waking up to this. There is more discussion about an alternative nuclear posture for the United States now than I've seen in a very long time. You've seen, for example, just last week, 10 uh, senators introduced a prevent a new nuclear arms race bill to ban funds for any new U.S. built missiles that would violate the INF Treaty. And that included six senators who are either candidates for the president already or are likely to become presidential candidates. You saw um, Adam Smith, the representative who's the head of the House Armed Services Committee, introduce a bill last week with um, Senator Elizabeth Warren. A, a presidential candidate calling to change U.S. policy to no first use, to not allow the first use of a nuclear weapon by any president at any time. This is becoming a a big area of discussion. I believe you're going to see hearings in the House uh, soon on this, and it's becoming a debating point that's becoming part of what the Democrats are developing as their alternative to the Trump administration policy. Uh, the hope is that this congressional action and European diplomacy cajoling can try to reverse the course of the Trump administration before it's too late. And one of the things Russia is really concerned about is the Trump administration's idea to uh, deploy things in Poland and have a base in Poland. And Poland offered a, a base, for a Trump ba air base or something. Uh, yeah. what, you know, that, yeah. is that a reality or is that what would that be like? Right. So from the Russian point of view, they see the U.S. as advancing on Russia since the uh, the end of the Cold War. It used to be a right-wing analysis, I heard Russian ultranationalists say. First, they got rid of the Soviet Union. Then they got rid of the Warsaw Pact. Now they're, they're coming after Mother Russia. But that is actually Putin's view. That's what he thinks is happening. So when he sees the United States put in um, anti-ballistic missile interceptors in Romania and now Poland, he says, well, that's, that's not really aimed at Iran. That's what we say. Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. That's aimed at us. And he points to these, this particular system. The, the launch tubes for this system, which can fire interceptors, can also fire Tomahawk cruise missiles, offensive weapons. It's the same tube. It's the same system. We use them on our Aegis ships. And he says, aha, that's what you're doing. That's a violation of the INF Treaty. So you're violating it before we violated it. They have a point that is not a frivolous um, uh, complaint. So the solution to this is to bring the two sides into compliance, to answer each other's concerns. For example, as many experts have suggested, inspections of each site. Inspect the Russian missiles, inspect the U.S. site, develop mechanisms so you can ensure that those systems are in compliance. There are ways to do this. The U.S. just 
isn't interested in doing this, and I don't think Putin is that interested either. It shows Putin and Trump are in agreement on this. They both want out of the treaty. In fact, the fact that this is such a gift to Putin, that it plays into his strategy so much, makes you wonder if Putin and Trump discussed this issue in any of the five secret meetings they have. Unfortunately, there were no other U.S. officials uh, at any of those meetings. We have no notes on the American side from those meetings, so we just don't know. I was reading about some of the comments of uh, Sergey Lavrov on the TASS uh, news service website, and they cited uh, some interesting statistics about Russian public opinion there, and they said that uh, two-thirds of Russian citizens believe uh, Moscow must undertake efforts to salvage the INF Accord. Is there something, is there something in Russia that would change the creation of popular opinion? It's possible if if the and there's a there's a mechanism here where if the U.S. was a little more forthcoming here was was recognizing some of the, the the legitimacy of some of the Russians' concerns. You can appeal to the Russian people. You can appeal to the some of the Russian Duma members who are not controlled by Putin. Yes, we seem to have given up on the kinds of efforts we always did, which was to always to reach out to the people of a country, not just to the leadership of the country. There's no effort on the part of the U.S. to do that, and that's a mistake. There is fertile ground there. There's, 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 there's places we can go. There's people we can influence. We're just not trying to do it anymore. In fact, my colleague, Senator Sam Nunn, his big push at the Nuclear Threat Initiative is to try to get a Duma congressional dialogue going, get members outside the, the executive branches talking to each other for precisely this reason. All right. Um, now, what... Should we be worried about New Start? I mean, is if there if people are concerned about the New Start treaty, what what is going to happen with that? And when it expires in twenty twenty one, this administration is going to kill the New Start treaty. I have no doubt. They do not want to extend it. They they want the limits off. This is John Bolton's philosophy. He is running the show. He has a disengaged president, a Secretary of State with one foot out the door, considering a Senate race in Kansas. Uh, He's 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 the brains behind the operation here. He's never liked these treaties. He's he he was against the INF treaty while it was being negotiated. This is this effort here is something he's specifically written about. He said, quote, violations give America the opportunity to discard obsolete Cold War era limits on its own arsenal and to upgrade its military capabilities. Bang. That's it. That's a signed confession. This is what he's doing. Right. He wants more nuclear weapons, not less. Joe Cirincione is president of the Plowshares Fund. He writes about John Bolton in today's Washington Post. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the INF Treaty and John Bolton. Thank you for having me on. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about one of the Soviet diplomats who helped draft the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we talked about the U.S. plan to withdraw from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. The 1988 agreement is just one in a canon of treaties that put a limit on nuclear proliferation. One of the first treaties of its kind was the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It set the tone for engaging states on nuclear weaponry. The BBC's Louise Hidalgo recently spoke with the retired Soviet diplomat Roland Timurbayev for the program Witness. He helped draft the treaty, which was signed by Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev and President Lyndon Johnson in 1968. It is the most important international agreement in the field of disarmament since the nuclear age began. President Johnson talking a few days before the signing of the treaty he'd helped make happen. I believe that this treaty can give the world time, very precious time, to protect itself against Armageddon. The nuclear age had begun just over 20 years earlier, towards the end of the Second World War. The first test of the atomic bomb in the New Mexico desert the shattering overture to a new era in man's history. Awe-stricken scientists watched a column of smoke leap 40,000 feet into the stratosphere. For the future, the choice is peace or total destruction. The city of Hiroshima lies prostrate after the withering blast which wiped out 53,000 of its population. Four years later, America's new Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union, tested its first atomic bomb. Miles into the air rises the giant shape of the now historic explosion. Now there were two nuclear superpowers pitted against each other. The decades that followed would be overshadowed by the very real fear there could be a nuclear war. The enemy bombers, in theory, are approaching the world's greatest city. Washington, too, takes part in the most realistic nationwide civil defense exercise since the atomic age was born. The atomic bomb is very dangerous. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks and while like the American that. government issued warnings to school children about what to do in the event of a nuclear attack... Such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings. Far away in the Soviet Union, people were also worried, says Roland Timurbayev. Some people were worried, some people were not... The same is true for us, for Russians. Some people are worried. Some people are proud to have it. Uh, Mr. Timurbayev, you, you joined the Soviet foreign ministry, didn't you, as a young man, that same year that, that Moscow got the bomb? I was the first diplomat in the foreign ministry who was asked by my superiors to create some kind of a section dealing with nuclear arms control. Because within just a few years, both the United States and the Soviet Union had gone from no bombs to literally hundreds of nuclear weapons, hadn't they? We tested in 1949, and after that, we started immediately to build many, many such things. (laughs) And by 1955, we were prepared to talk. That year, 1955, Moscow and Washington began talking about a possible ban on nuclear testing, with a view that this would later lead to talks about nuclear disarmament. But the negotiations dragged on, then stalled, as first America, then Moscow, began developing ballistic missiles. By now, two more countries had joined the nuclear club, Britain and France. China wasn't far behind. The turning point, Roland Timurbayev says, came with the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
when for a few terrifying days the world stood on the brink of nuclear war. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases... 1960. Now everybody understands that we could be minutes before a complete disaster. And since then, people who are involved, they understood what is nuclear weapons. People really did think at that time, didn't they, including very senior politicians on, on both sides, that this was it, there would be a nuclear confrontation. But at the last minute, the Soviets and the Americans pulled back. Your boss at the time was Andrei Gromyko, the Soviet foreign minister, who was a great advocate, wasn't he, of disarmament? He always had his own ideas, unlike many other foreign ministers. And he liked to call me and say, come to me, let's discuss this problem. Because both of us had something in common. You shared his passion, didn't you, trying to control this nuclear threat that had been unleashed. Sometimes I was able to persuade him to do something. Sometimes I was not able, because he had to consult a Politburo. I, I was several times at the Politburo meeting. Gramika took me, and there was Suslov. Suslov was party ideologist. This Communist Party ideologist, Mikhail Suslov, was one of the most important men in the Kremlin at the time, wasn't he? And he didn't seem to share Gromyko's belief that they should talk to the Americans about controlling the spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, he was against everything. He only wanted to, to build the communism in Russia. But in the end, Roland Timobayev says the foreign minister, Gromyko, prevailed. In 1963, the Soviet Union and America signed a partial nuclear test ban treaty. The West did flirt briefly afterwards with the idea of creating a nuclear force for NATO. But then came a report warning it wouldn't be long before 20 countries or more acquired nuclear weapons. Gromyko flew to the United States. It was time to start work on a nuclear non-proliferation treaty. Every year he would go to Washington to speak to U.S. president. By that time it was Lyndon Johnson. And Johnson understood that we must do something. And Gromyko understood. And they sat down and quickly decided the major principles of the treaty. They decided they'd have three negotiators each drafting the treaty. Roland Timobayev was one of the three sent from Moscow. They met in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. And we sat down in New York for two or maybe three months and we discussed every word of the treaty. You quickly drafted Article 1 and 2, most important really, in which nuclear states agree not to transfer or receive nuclear weapons or technology. It was not that hard because in principle this was decided by Johnson and Gramyko. And we were only finding the most suitable words for what they decided. Uh, the drafting later continued in Geneva, by which time there was an 18-country committee. And one of the hardest bits to agree was Article 3, wasn't it? Verification to ensure signatories met their obligations. And that took months, didn't it? The Soviets didn't like verification. <laughs> but, but anyhow, NATO countries wanted verification, so it took us many, many months to agree upon Article 3. A lot of the fine negotiation was done between you and your American counterpart, George Bunn, and you used to slip off, just the two of you, didn't you? You'd 
even resorted once to a sailing trip on Lake Geneva just to escape prying eyes. They were trying to follow us, to watch us. What are we doing? (laughs) And after that, we were friends until he passed away a couple of years ago. By the end of 1967, most of the text of the treaty was ready. In July 1968, it was signed by 62 states, including the United States and the Soviet Union. This treaty is not the work of any one country, but is in fact the product of all nations which shared our concern... It took another two years to ratify, but that moment of signing the treaty must have been an extraordinary moment for you. I understood the meaning of the whole treaty only later on. Only later I I understood that nuclear explosive is something not for war, not a weapon. All the 20th century we were worrying. Those worries have continued, however, into the 21st century, in particular with regard to Iran and North Korea. Roland Timobayev has spent the rest of his life working for nuclear non-proliferation. He's now in his 90s and lives in Moscow. Roland Timobayev was speaking to me, Louise Hidalgo, for Witness. El Salvador went to the polls to elect a new president over the weekend. After the break, we'll get to know the 37-year-old next president of El Salvador, Naib Bukele. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The new president of El Salvador is a 37-year-old former mayor of San Salvador. He dominated the presidential campaign with his social media savvy. He broke up the traditional two-party rule that's had a grip on politics in El Salvador since the end of the Civil War. Let's talk about Naib Bukele. He is the next president of El Salvador, and with us is Oscar Chacon, and he's joining us from El Salvador. Good to talk with you, Oscar. Likewise, it's good to hear you all. Tell us a little bit about Naib Bukele, because he sounds like a really different kind of player on the political scene there. In many ways, he is a different player. He has a very short political career in El Salvador, going back about six and a half years. Prior to that, he was really not at all involved in politics. Uh, He first became mayor of a small town uh, near San Salvador called Nuevo Cuscatlán. And then in 2015, he became the mayor of San Salvador, which is the biggest municipality in the country. And so that's about all there is to his political career. He was elected mayor in both instances under the FMLM. He was actually a member of the FMLM at the time. But towards the end of his mayoral term in San Salvador, he entered into a fight 
with the leadership of the FMLN, and he was actually expelled uh, from the party. And the and the and, FMLN is the leftist party in yes, El Salvador FMLN that, that came out of the Bundo rebel Martí movement. Front for National Liberation, which was in office for the past 10 years and actually will be ending their 10-year term in June of this year. And it sounds like he beat the ARENA party, which is the conservative party. Their man came in number two in the election campaign. Uh, what was the tenor of this campaign? Because it sounds like, you know, he's winning on his youth, his uh, appeal to young people and his social media savvy. He's kind of a different kind of creature. Well, it is. And I have to say, Jerome, that we are going to be finding out more details on two fronts that I believe he has projected as primary characteristics that make him different from previous candidates, but we don't really know for sure yet how extensive these two factors were. You mentioned social media. He indeed managed to campaign a great deal you know, through social media, but we yet don't know how decisive that really was. He also managed to project an image of him appealing to young voters, but we don't know yet. Know, how much young voters actually came out for him. What I can tell you is that he absolutely won every one of the 14 provinces of El Salvador. He was able to secure about 1.4 million votes uh, in yesterday's election, which means about 54% of all the people who voted uh, yesterday. Arena came second. And Arena, I should say, ran into a coalition with four other small political parties. And these parties together were able to only get 31, nearly 32% of the vote. And the big loser was really the FMLM. Uh, they only grabbed about 14.5% of the votes yesterday. But as I said, it is early to know for certain how significant the youth vote was or how decisive the social media component really was, because overall, we also went down in terms of voter turnout. The voter turnout in this election will come out to be about 50 percent compared to 60.4 percent turnout in the last presidential election in oh. 2014. Well, one of the things he campaigned on was anti-corruption, and he had an anti-corruption slogan. Is he have a history of being a quality anti-corruption politician? Not exactly. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of international media outlets focus and characterize uh, Bukele as a politician that can be distinguished from the others because of his absolutely clean past. But that's not exactly true. I mean, some of the most important investigative journalism outlets in this country actually uncover a couple of instances where one couldn't really say that Bukele was absolutely clean, you know, from corruption. But what it is true is that he managed to present himself as the one candidate different than the others that were all corrupt. And to be honest with you, there is indeed a lot of corruption, as attested by the fact that there is a former president now in jail, a former president from ARENA. Uh, there is another uh, ARENA former president who died while being indicted. And then there is also accusations now about the former FMLM president, uh, Mauricio Funes. And there will likely be more charges like this, you know, once this current government goes out of office. So again, I mean, I think he absolutely managed to present himself as the one candidate fighting against corruption. 
I understand that he proposed something along the lines of what's happening in Guatemala, where they have a U.N. organization that helps fight corruption in Guatemala, and it's been credited with a lot of their high-level prosecutions. Would something like that fly in El Salvador? It seems like something is working if you've got a bunch of ex-presidents in jail already, that there's already some prosecutorial muscle there. It is yet to be seen as to whether what Najib actually proposed, he spoke a lot you know, about the importance of bringing in the UN and empowering the UN to do more investigation of high-level corruption cases. Uh, what I can tell you is that he absolutely discovered over the past four or five months that corruption and anti-corruption messaging was an absolutely powerful message for him to use. Uh, and he used it very effectively. But what it is yet to be seen is whether this will actually translate into the UN coming in and actually doing uh, the kind of investigation that CICIC has done in the case of Guatemala. Again, keep in mind that while there are lots of criticisms that can be made about the Salvadorian judicial system, no other country in Central America, especially when you talk about Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, has actually managed not only to indict, but to actually condemn and put in jail as a matter of sentence a former president. I'm talking with Oscar Chacon from Alianza America, and we're discussing the elections in El Salvador this weekend, and he's joining us from El Salvador. And Najib Bukele won. He's a 37-year-old former mayor of San Salvador. And I wanted to talk about his record there and approach to organized crime and gangs and fighting gangs. What did he do there? Did he have a strategy that worked? Well, actually, what I can tell you that he did as a mayor of San Salvador is to really focus like a laser beam on a couple of things that were very obvious to the population residing in San Salvador as very clear accomplishments. The number one issue was actually public lighting. You know, as it is well known in terms of how do you prevent public crime and safety is by basically putting light, you know, in as much of San Salvador, as much of a given city as you can. He did that very successfully. He actually managed to bring public lightning to places that never had it. And so that was a very obvious accomplishment during his administration. But the other one is, and this is something very important, mainly from an emotional point of view, many, many mayors of San Salvador promised over and over again that they were going to clean up downtown San Salvador, but never succeeded in actually doing it. Nayib Bukele did, and he did it without entering into a fight with public vendors. He has actually lift up the appearance of downtown San Salvador in a way that has not been done ever in recent history. And so these accomplishments made a lot of people feel that he was indirectly creating conditions that allow, for example, for more younger people to be engaged, for more younger people to have access to cultural development programs, arts programs, combined with these efforts of reviving the appearance of downtown San Salvador. So this is really what he absolutely used as window dresser to say, I did this in San Salvador, I can do it for the whole country. One thing I want to point out, Jerome, that is very important, Nayib Bukele managed very well to sell the idea that he's going to fix El Salvador's main problems. What he did not ever say to anybody is how exactly 
he's going to do it. And that's going to be perhaps his biggest challenge once he is sworn into office on June 1st. I wanted to say something about uh, what's happening in Venezuela. And I noticed that he took a position on Venezuela, and obviously the United States and the Secretary of State here has been saying all countries have to choose a side now and we're all going to figure this out. What did he decide to do about Venezuela? Essentially, he recently put himself on alignment, if you want, with the U.S. government-led efforts uh, vis-a-vis Venezuela. He has said that he's going to basically join the rest of countries in Latin America who are calling for Maduro to step out. And in that respect, he has clearly made a very important decision that makes him somebody that the U.S. government can see, at least on the case of Venezuela, as a friend, as a country and as a leader that will be reliable in as far as the U.S. goals uh, towards Venezuela. I also noticed, though, that at the same time he did that, he said that election was a bad election and Honduras's election was bad, too, and their president is a dictator, too. Yeah. No, and, and I think that that's important to highlight because one of the hypocritical aspects of the whole anti-Maduro uh, campaign, internationally speaking, is that it's a fairly one-sided campaign because, you know, we have had, indeed, cases such as Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras, who is in office as a result of a totally illegal election where, in reality, the constitution of that country do not allow uh, presidents to seek re-election, and yet he is the president now in the U.S., blessed his election, and nothing was said about that. So Bukele did say that, and I believe that that is consistent with his approach, that he's going to call any wrongs, no matter what ideological orientation a situation may have, he will stand for what he believes uh, it is right. So it is an interesting position that combines both what the U.S. likes and something the U.S. doesn't. Now, has he spoken out on the people who are seeking asylum from El Salvador in the United States? There are groups that are consistently coming. The number of people seeking asylum keeps going up from this uh, region in Central America. Does he have a plan to change that at all, or what's his idea? No. He actually kept quiet, and I cannot just blame him. Uh, Every single candidate that was running for the presidency decided consciously to basically avoid speaking about the migration challenges that Central America and El Salvador in particular still have. And the analysis behind this is that they did not want to engage in a conversation that could inevitably land them in the opposite side of where the U.S. government happens to be. You know, one of the meetings I had while I was here in El Salvador the past few days uh, was with the U.S. Embassy. And they reminded us once again that their chief political goal, going back to 2014 all the way to today, is to stop the illegal, irregular migration flow from Central American countries to the U.S. And I believe that is the reason why not only Najib, but the other candidates consciously decided not to even address migration challenge. And it is a central challenge because this is a situation that continues to affect the life of these countries. And I don't believe there will be anything magical that will make Salvadorians less likely to want to leave uh, because, again, uh, the realities that are pushing people out don't change overnight. 
I wanted to ask also about whether he had a plan about temporary protected status people who might come back to El Salvador. The U.S. is trying to reject the temporary protected status of a couple hundred thousand Salvadorans in the U.S., and they would go back to El Salvador after decades in the U.S. Does that come up at all in the election? No, actually didn't. Uh, There may have been one or two instances in which in a very generic manner, he may have said, you know, of course, we will do the best we can to be supportive of our people coming back. But, you know, let's be frank. I mean, the reality is you cannot really build a separate country for people being forcefully returned from the U.S. than the country where the rest of the Salvadorians live. And in that respect, I think that the challenge that he will have, and I really consider this to be the most important challenge, for the now you know, elected president of El Salvador is, how do you really create economic opportunity in a way that truly challenges the fact that there is endemic unemployment in a country where earnings continue to be drastically lower you know, than they are in the U.S.? And for as long as we have those factors combined with the insecurity that is injected by organized crime, by gangs, you know, and by abusive police and military forces, I don't believe that we are going to magically solve the question of people coming back or people leaving. I'm talking with Oscar Chacon from Alianza America, and he's joining us from El Salvador. And we're discussing Nayib Bukele, the 37-year-old former mayor of San Salvador, who was elected president of El Salvador over the weekend. I wanted to just say something about his identity. His grandparents were from the Middle East. His father headed the Association of Muslims in El Salvador for some period of time. What is his background here, and what kind of factor was that in the campaign? Well, let me begin by saying that all of what you mentioned is true. That does not make Najib Bukele an active Muslim. On the contrary, he converted to Catholicism years ago. So he has been a practicing Catholic over many years. And I have to say that the ARENA party actually tried to use the fact that Najib Bukele's family come from a Muslim background to basically suggest, you know, if Najib Bukele is elected, we are bound to see El Salvador becoming a Muslim country, which is ridiculous. He never, ever spoke to any of that. I cannot say that Nayib Bukele has ever taken a clear stand uh, on matters of Middle Eastern you know, politics. Uh, I don't really know where does he stand in terms of the Jewish, you know, Palestinian conflict. And all these issues are issues that we will be gradually discovering. Where does he stand uh, once he begins to actually address something he hasn't, you know, which is to actually put forward plans? Uh, because as I said before, he has been very lofty in the kind of proposals that he has made, very ambitious, eye-catching you know, proposals, but never really going into details about how is he going to actually make that happen. Lastly, I wanted to say something about the vote count. And I know that Naib Bukele was a little concerned about the vote count, but it looks like El Salvador counted their votes straight. And this is an accomplishment in the region and uh, around, you know, anywhere these days. Absolutely. I actually served yesterday as an electoral observer in one of the busiest voting places in San Salvador. And I have to take my hat off. I mean, they are extremely efficient, extremely 
cordial. You know, our the system in El Salvador is obviously very different than the system in El Salvador. I was actually speaking with the U.S. ambassador who was doing her own round of visits yesterday in the same location, and we were both agreeing that for as much as one may criticize El Salvador and and the different you know political parties here. They have actually done a very good job putting together an electoral system that is fairly flawless and it functions very well. There were uh, results available by 10 p.m. last night that haven't really changed that much. And there hasn't been any complaint of any kind of wrongdoing in as far as uh, the actual election or the count that follow immediately after. So, yeah, I mean, this is something that I definitely would say it's a significant change from the El Salvador I grew up with in the late 1970s, which nobody would trust at all when it comes to electoral faithfulness. Oscar Chacon is with Alianza America. He's been El Salvador for the elections, and the elections over the weekend brought the 37-year-old former mayor of San Salvador to power. His name is Naib Bukele, and we'll hear more about him in the future. Thanks a lot for joining us, and good talking with you, Oscar. Pleasure always. Thank you, Jerome. In a lot of countries, the military plays an outsized role in politics. How do you get them to kind of pull back and not be so involved in politics? Well, a lot, in a lot of places, you make them an offer and you try to give them a better deal. And tomorrow we are going to be talking about a possible strategy along these lines for Venezuela's military. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Did you know that you can enjoy Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and click subscribe. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Thank you.